The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. Please stand for a reading from Luke chapter 11, verses 29 through 36. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented of the preaching at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. I add my welcome to Brian's. My name is Chad Middlebrooks, and I am one of the pastors here on staff. And just want to add another encouragement that next week that you come out to the ministry fair to see how God can use the gifts and the talents that he's equipped you with to help further build up the body here at LNPC and apply those talents to the needs that we have within the congregation. Uh, and again, also, if you encourage you to download the Realm Connect app, uh, so that you can be have that available for you and our ministry leaders can help to organize and communicate the information to you efficiently as well as effectively. Well, this morning we are picking back up in our study in Luke's gospel that we left off back in November. I'm sure you all remember that. And just by way of a very quick reminder, Luke is writing this letter to Theophilus and he's doing so that he might be have assurance of the things that he has been taught concerning the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have seen how Jesus has called his disciples to follow him, to lay down their lives for him, and we've seen him perform many miracles. And as we saw when we got to Luke chapter 9, Jesus then turns his face towards Jerusalem where he will go to fulfill the Father's will as he will lay down his life on the cross for his people. And so the account that we have just heard read just a moment ago in chapter 11 here really begins with Jesus casting out a demon of a mute man. And then as many of the people in the the crowd saw this, some of them accused Jesus of actually working for Satan. But Jesus shows the absurdity of their logic as he says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so what you're saying makes no sense. But there's also a woman in the crowd who boldly spoke up and she said these words. She said, 
Blessed is the womb that bore you, Jesus, and the breast at which you nursed. And as if Jesus says, yes, you're right, but let me ratchet it up even further to say, blessed is the one who hears the word of God and who cherishes that word in his heart. And so this is where we pick up our story this morning as Jesus confronts the motives of those who are in the crowd and he reveals how man is to respond in light of what they've seen and in light of what they've heard from him. So let's pray as we come to this text and ask the Spirit to bless our time in his word. Father in heaven, some of us have come into this place this morning feeling as it looks outside, feeling dark and gloomy, needing hope, needing encouragement. And so Father, would the light of your living and enduring word be a balm to our hearts and would it be a light unto our feet and our path? Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes and our ears right now that we might behold wondrous things in your word. Would you come and apply that word to our hearts that we might be transformed and changed, leaving this place different from which we came. Father, keep us from simply going through the motions this morning. We pray this for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Well, last this past week, I came across these words from a woman who was responding to this statement on a post online. And the statement was this, I prefer darkness over light. And here's what she writes. I do prefer darkness over light. The darkness allows me to hide who I am and what I truly feel. In the darkness, all things have a chance to be revealed. Excuse me, in the light, all things have a chance to be revealed, but darkness makes it easier to hide. In the dark, you cannot see what is coming next. The darkness is a place where you can lose yourself. And lost in the dark is a great place to be because then You are free from what you were and can be what you want. The darkness is bliss. Now, upon hearing these words, I doubt if many of us, if any of us in here, would say that we agree with this woman's sentiments. But I do wonder if not deep down in some small place in our heart that we find that we resonate a little bit. We identify with some of those sentiments, that it does seem easier at times to hide who we really are and what we're truly feeling. Jesus, if you remember, said to Nicodemus, he said, the light has come into the world, but the men have loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Jesus came into this, to this earth to shine light in the darkness of this world. And only through submission to the light of God's word that is revealed through the personal work of Jesus can we not be overtaken by darkness and the coming judgment that we will all face. And so this morning we will learn that the word of God that we have entrusted to us is sufficient to lead us both to repentance and faith and also examination and reflection. So in verse 29, we're told that the crowds were increasing as Jesus was performing miracles The people are wondering, is Jesus really who he says he is? Is he the Messiah that he claims to be? And Jesus addresses the crowds with these words that you just heard. This generation is an evil generation. Now that's not the words you use if you're trying to build up a following. But why did he say this to them? He said it to them because he says they were continually seeking signs to know if he really was who he said that he was. And these same people have already seen Jesus heal the lame. 
give sight to the blind, feed thousands of people with a few loaves and fish, raise the dead, and they saw the mute man who had had the demon taken out of him. He's among them right there in the crowd. And Jesus said, everything that I've given you is evidence of who I am. You've just disregarded. My words and my work attest to my identity as the Messiah. And yet, many in the crowd still didn't believe. And Jesus says, I'm not going to give you what you're asking for. I'm going to offer you what you need, which is the truth that you might repent and believe in it. And he does so by referencing two historical figures to emphasize the essentiality of recognizing the light and then walking in that light. And so Jesus says, the only sign this generation is going to receive is the sign of Jonah. Now, many of us remember the story of Jonah. Jonah was called to go to Nineveh to preach and to preach judgment there. And the Ninevites were notorious for being heinous and just wicked as all get out. And Jonah said, nope, not going to do it. So he gets in a boat and goes in the complete opposite direction. A storm comes up and the sailors on the ship are scared to death. They think they're going to die. And Jonah says, this is because of me. Just throw me overboard. Everything will be okay. So they throw him overboard. He gets swallowed up by a whale, spends three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. And then he spit out on the shore. And the Ninevites are there. And they hear this message that Jonah finally, even reluctantly somewhat, proclaims to them and says, 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And upon seeing this deliverance, this resurrection of Jonah, and then hearing this word proclaimed to them, they repent and they believe in this message that they've received and in the God who has sent it. It says everybody from the cattle all the way to the king. And in Matthew's account, in Matthew 12, he writes this. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But Luke omits this in his text. And there's a lot of debate as to whether the sign of Jonah here is the judgment proclamation that he gives, or if it is Jonah's deliverance, his resurrection, as it were, being delivered from the belly of the fish. But I don't think we have to pit one against the other. Because without Jonah's deliverance and his resurrection, he would not have a preaching ministry. And the resurrection from the whale would have been useless if Jonah didn't open his mouth and proclaim judgment that was coming for Nineveh. And since Luke is writing to a people who've already known that they know the story of the gospel, and so he's given it to them to strengthen their faith, I think it makes sense that the sign of Jonah here is intended to mean both the ministry of the word, the proclamation, and also the ministry of deed, the resurrection that was to come in Christ. And Jesus, who is the word made flesh, standing there before them, he's revealing that by my life, my death, and my resurrection, that I bring salvation to all who trust in me. Now, the other story that he gives is a story found in 1 Kings chapter 10 with the Queen of Sheba. Queen of Sheba had heard all about the fame and the glory of Solomon and his wisdom, but she wanted to attest herself to see if all this was true. So what does she do? She gets on her camel and she travels over a thousand miles, remember now, first century here, a thousand miles to go see for herself. And she gets there and she sees Solomon's house. She sees all the riches and what he has there and she sits him down and she begins to pepper him with challenging questions, asking if he really is who he, is, who he says he is and if the God that he serves is who he says he is. And here's how she responds after seeing all of this and witnessing it. She says, Blessed be the Lord your God who set you on the throne of Israel 
that you might execute justice and righteousness. So Jesus here uses these two stories of Gentile outsiders to reveal to Jewish insiders that both the queen of Sheba and the men of Nineveh are going to rise up and judge this current generation for their unbelief, for who is standing there before them. Jesus is alluding to the judgment day, that they will be raised up and they will condemn them because they did not believe who was standing before them, the Messiah. If the wicked Ninevites could believe a half-hearted prophet in his message, how much more should this generation and even us receive the one who is far greater than Jonah? And where Jonah fled on a boat away from God's will, remember Jesus slept peacefully in the boat during the storm because he was trusting in his father's will. And where Jonah wanted nothing to do with the mercy that he was going to extend to the Ninevites that he despised, Jesus went full force to the cross knowing that he could offer mercy to those who didn't deserve it. And Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of that fish. But Jesus spent three days, three nights before he was raised from the grave. And similarly, the queen of Sheba was willing to go to great lengths in order to to get a glimpse of Solomon's splendor and his wisdom and all his glory. And she believed upon the God of Israel who put Solomon in that position of authority. And if she believed based on the man, Solomon's wisdom, again, how much more should this generation believe in the God-man who is the embodiment of wisdom? See, Jesus didn't just have a few riches stockpiled like Solomon did. He owns it all. It's his. Jesus didn't just execute justice and righteousness. He's the incarnation of justice and righteousness. Jesus did greater works and was pointing to greater realities than Jonah and Solomon could ever think about doing. Jesus' message from the very beginning when he came to this earth was repent and believe upon me. The crowd, they had all the evidence that they needed but they couldn't see it. They were blind. How could the people miss that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, the problem lies within our sinful hearts, not with anything where Jesus is concerned. The Jewish crowd here had seen and heard the word in the flesh, but they still didn't understand and still didn't didn't see. They would not repent of their sin and believe in the Messiah because he was not meeting their expectations of what they wanted the Messiah to be. And what they wanted him to do for them. They wanted something more. Rather than seeing the authenticity and the sufficiency of the word that was standing right there before them. So what does Jesus do? He very provocatively, very bluntly says this point that there's only two options into how you relate to the Son of God. Either you are evil because of your sin and your unwillingness to repent and believe in me. Or he says you're righteous because of the righteousness earned by Christ that is received to you through repentance and faith in Jesus alone. That's it. Those are the only two options that he gives. And now, especially in our Bible Belt South, many of us, have, many of us in the culture have bought into this idea of cultural Christianity. This is the idea that I can identify with Jesus and, and Christianity, but yet my practices and the, thing, the way that I live my life, it's borrowing more from the culture than borrowing from the life of Christ. And so there's no real substance of intimate relationship with Jesus that bears the fruit of that in my life. 
Even though cultural Christians can involve themselves with all kinds of Christian activities. They can even look moral on the surface. But what Jesus is saying here is that you may participate in all the Christian activities you want. Whether coming to church, going to a Bible study, tithing, even going to a Christian school, doing all these things. But none of these things in and of themselves can make you right before a holy God. If you're picking and choosing, if you are coming to God on your own terms... He says, you're evil and you need to repent and believe in the gospel. And even for those of us who are believers, if we fall back into this temptation by believing that we can come to God in the way we want, this too is evil and we need to repent of this in the same way. Are you simply playing the part of a Christian this morning? Or have you truly submitted your life in full surrender through repentance and faith unto the Lord Jesus. Children, teenagers, are you cultivating a discipline of reading and studying God's word rather than letting it be taught to you simply by your youth leaders or your Sunday school teacher, even one of us pastors up here? Are you taking the word yourself and studying it? Peter says in 2 Peter 1, the Spirit's granted us everything we need to live the life of godliness that we are called to live as Christ's followers. See, the reason we're called to study God's word is not so that we can simply become smarter sinners and maybe have a little more morality in our lives. We're called to study it so that we can be transformed more into the image of Christ and remain in the light of his truth that he has given us. His word is sufficient, it's trustworthy, and it demands a response from every one of us. Have you responded to the gospel in true repentance and faith? Jesus, who is truth embodied, he's come to bring light, he says. And this is what we see next. We learn that God's word is sufficient to lead us to examination and reflection. Verses 33 through 36, Jesus uses these metaphors of light in the eyes to drive home the importance of giving ourselves over to the light of his revelation. Now remember, in the first century, when the sun went down, you didn't have electricity. So what did they do? They lit a lamp and they put it on a pedestal there in the middle of the room so that it could give light to as much of the room as it could and benefit as many people in the house that were there. And the only way to have that light was to put it in the middle. And he says, similarly, the light of God's word, it must be shown upon human hearts. It can't be hidden because if it is, it's useless. If we have power going out in a storm, you don't take the only flashlight in the house and go hoard it in a corner by yourself. That'd be selfish. In verse 34, he goes on, he says, your eye is the lamp of your body. And when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Now the ancient concept was, was that the eye would take in light and it would illuminate the rest of the body. And so it would allow the mind and the other faculties to comprehend and assimilate and respond to what the light reveals. It's kind of similar to the idea of if you have a, a plant that's in a dark room, but there's a ray of light coming in, that plant is going to send out a leaf to the light as best it can to gain the nutrients from the light to then give it back to the plant so they can continue to grow and thrive. This is how they thought about the eye. The eye was the window of the soul. And so what you, the way that you see things affects everything inside of you. And Jesus is revealing that how we receive his truth and how we receive his resurrection is going to impact everything about our lives. If your eyes are good then everything functions as it's supposed to. 
If you've wholeheartedly trusted upon Christ and his word, then you're gonna be transformed more and more from the darkness into light and you're gonna bear that fruit. But if your eye is bad and you neglect the truth, then you're gonna remain in darkness and you're gonna bear the marks of that. That's gonna lead to destruction and ultimately death. In verse 35, Jesus gives this warning. He says, be careful. Be careful lest the light that's in you is darkness. And he's revealing that there can be a sense in which you think you have light in you, but it's really darkness. If your eyes are bad, if they're diseased, then you can't see rightly. So for example, for some of us, as you get older, you develop cataracts on your eyes. And what this is, is simply just the lens becoming cloudy and progressively more and more where you can't see clearly. Our 10-year-old dog, Rascal, has developed cataracts over the last couple of years. He can't see very well. And this past week, I was outside with him in the bright sunshine, and we came into our garage where it became relatively dark, and he ran right into the rock wall in our garage because he couldn't see. And apart from a unaffordable surgery to enable Rascal to see again, this is similar to what happens to us. Without the Spirit working in our lives, we can't see anything. And we stumble around in the darkness doing harm to ourselves. Even though we may think we're seeing clearly, apart from Christ in our sin, we are always being deceived. Being blind to our discontentment. Blind to the bitterness in our lives. Blind to our envy, our addictions, and every other sin. But not only being blind to those things, but being blind to the impact that they're having on our lives and those that are around us as well. But if you've embraced the righteousness of Christ on your behalf, the Bible says your very nature has changed. You now have the ability by the spirit that indwells your heart to walk in the light now because you are a new creation. But however, we know that we still battle those old tendencies and those old patterns of sin that still remains in our hearts. But let's not forget what Paul tells us in Ephesians 5. For at one time you were darkness, past tense. Now you are light in the Lord. David Pallison says this, I think very helpful. He says, whether at salvation or in sanctification, there is this from to dynamic that we experience. Going from the old man to the new man. From darkness to light. He says this goes on and everything that changes in our lives always comes via the mercies and the redemptive goodness of Christ. And he goes on to say, every day there's a place where the battle is joined. We'll be tempted to be asleep, tempted to be deaf and blind, and we need to awake. We need to see, we need to hear, and we need to turn to the Lord and his mercies. We must constantly consider what we are fixing our eyes upon, what we're allowing our eyes to see and take in. Are we or have we metaphorically put our light under a basket, rendering it useless? Are our desires, our motives, our actions, are they contrary to the righteousness that is in us because of Christ in whom we've trusted? Well, how do we know then if we're taking in light or if we're taking in darkness? That's a question we need to ponder. I think it involves at least three things. First, we have to ask the Spirit in order to open our eyes that we can examine our hearts and bring conviction upon where we are living in sin and we can't see the blind spots that we have. But then and also we need to invite other brothers and sisters who we trust to reveal those blind spots speaking truth and his promises to us as well. 
We can't do this alone in isolation. But secondly, after that sin is revealed, then we must specifically confess those sins, realizing that because of Christ's resurrection, we can now pursue righteousness and face our sin without the fear of condemnation. Because brothers and sisters, this is what is true. We will never grow in the gospel, never spiritually mature apart from ongoing repentance in our lives. Because without repentance, we can't pursue obedience to Christ. Because either what's going to happen is our failures, they're going to undo us, and we're going to be discouraged, and we're not going to pursue obedience and fidelity to God, or we're just going to simply gloss over, cover up, and justify our sin, leading to all kinds of other ungodliness. But third, even after we confess our sin, we have to take in the light of God's truth by reading, meditating, listening to God's word. And if wisdom is the application of knowledge that's applied in practical ways in our lives, then as we take in the gospel truths and we skillfully apply them to the very aspects of our lives through the help of the Holy Spirit, then we can actually live as Paul calls us to. Not to be conformed anymore to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we can test and discern what is God's will, his good, acceptable, and perfect will. Only as we have a healthy eye can we perceive the world around us in the way that God has called us to. And as we see truth more clearly, what begins to happen is we begin to see all the other things around us in creation more clearly by God's design. We begin to see and relate to money differently. We relate to one another differently. We relate to our families, our material possessions, our politics, our race, sex, our families, and everything else according to God's design and not according to our own desires. And as our hearts become more liberated through repentance and faith, we become more empowered and emboldened to obey God's word. Therefore, reflecting the light of the gospel out into the dark places. And in light of the gospel, we can offer the message of the resurrected Christ to those who were living in darkness, calling them out so that they might experience the light and eternal salvation that's found in Christ. Are you reflecting the glory of God in your life? In your relationships? In your family? In your vocation? In your private life? We have the living word before us. Let us walk in the light as he is in the light, seizing every opportunity that he gives us to shine forth the light of Christ into the dark places. May our light so shine that others might see our good works and that they too might be called out of darkness and to give glory and honor to our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the midst of living in darkness, shackled by our sin, that you have come, the light of the world, to reveal to us, to open our eyes, that we might see not only our sin and our desperate need for a Savior, but that you might accomplish through your life, through your death, and through your resurrection what needed to be accomplished so that we could be reconciled to you. Father, I pray if there's any in here who have not yet bowed the knee to you through repentance and faith, that you by your Spirit would allow them to do so even this day. And for the rest of us, Lord, may we continue to seek in your word to find you, to meet us in all the circumstances of our lives. We might know that the sufficiency of your word applied to our hearts so that we can live in obedience, therefore reflecting the light, being a city on a hill for your glory and for your namesake. And Father, now as we come 
to taste and feed upon your table. Thank you again for your provision, even more knowing what we need, that we might be reminded yet again in taste of the gospel to know what you have done for us. And so we thank you for your good work. And we ask that you would continue to apply to our hearts so that we might be ever more changed to walk in the light as you were in the light. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.